Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of FYI. I'm Nicholas Gruss. I'm an analyst at Arc working on the next generation internet theme. And with me today, I have Andrew Kim, an Arc Research Associate, and our guest, Paul Travers, CEO of Usix, a company developing wearable display technology. We are going to hear from Paul in just a few moments, but before that, I wanted to share Arc's line of thinking when it comes to the ARVR space. We believe we're in the early innings of ARVR adoption and that in the future, these computing platforms will be as commonplace as laptops and mobile devices are today. In fact, based on our research, the ARVR markets could grow at a 59% compound annual rate during the next five years. This would expand the market from roughly $3 billion today to over $28 billion by 2025. With that, let's hear from Paul. Paul, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We are very happy to have you on to talk all things AR, VR, and I want to jump right in. You have over 25 years of experience in the virtual reality, virtual display space. Can you tell us about how you got started and what led to a career in AR and VR? Yeah, thanks, Nick. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the time to tell our story a little bit. So actually, this is my fourth business. I built and sold two businesses after leaving Eastman Kodak's research labs in about four years, and I was quite successful. And then I started a virtual reality head-mounted display company making consumer products. So that was in 93, maybe. So yeah, you're right. I've made a career out of this. We've been doing it for a while. And because I'd been successful, I was able to, in nine, and first of all, this product we made was a product called the VFX1. It was the world's first consumer VR headset. I'm not even sure if Lucky Palmer was born in that time frame, who was the inventor of the Oculus that Facebook bought. But in any event, we built this helmet size thing and a controller you could play Duke Nukem and all those quakes and those kinds of things and we probably sold six million dollars worth of product in our first quarter but that was long years ago it was clearly technology way ahead of itself and the rest of the technology in the world hadn't caught up so I bought out all the outside shareholders and started Vuzix in 1997 and Vuzix has had a focus in the wearable display space as you say augmented reality VR devices and we first started in defense. We were making thermal weapon site engines for DRS and Raytheon. And we were working with the special forces guys. We made this little thing called a tack eye, which was a display you wore, like Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of a thing. And with it, a special forces guy could throw a robot in a building and the video feed from the robot would be in the glasses so he could drive around and see what was going on inside the building. And he could also plug that into his tough books. And the problem is these guys were wearing 300 pounds of gear. So they came to Vuzix, this is like in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
300 pounds of gear. They're like, we want to get rid of our tough books. We open them up. They light up like a Christmas tree. They weigh all this. Can you make a pair of glasses with computers in them that look like Oakley's? They called it the Oakley Gate. And they're like, oh, man, if you can get through the Oakley Gate, half the U.S. military is going to buy these glasses. So we learned early on in this game, if you make big and bulky and heavy stuff, it's going to fail. If it's odd looking and people won't want to wear it outside because they look dumb or like they just stepped out the Starship Enterprise, it's going to fail. You need lightweight and you need sexy looking glasses and they need to be highly functional. And that has been the focus for Buzik's. There's lots of competitors out there today, and we look at it, and we think most of them are all the way back in our VR days where it was this giant football helmet. And I have to say those kinds of products don't work. For us, lightweight, truly wearable, and not VR, but more so on the augmented reality space. So, yeah, we've been at it for a long time, and we've gotten some of the secret sauce down, I think, over all these years. Absolutely. And I just want to touch on, you know, how you went from the world's first consumer grade VR headset to AR. Like, was there an aha moment of like, hey, AR, there's a bigger opportunity here? Or, you know, was there a boom bust cycle in the VR space? Like what led to that decision in the company? Yeah, I mean, it became so apparent right out of the gates when we started working with the U.S. defense markets. If you think about it, they're the first mobile wearable tech guys. and you can't give a VR headset to a special forces guy and expect him to go to war with it. You can't see anything but the virtual space. Having these little displays that weren't in your way, but you could use them made all the difference in the world. And all of a sudden there were use cases that made sense in the real world. And for us, that immediately was like, look, if, if you can make this thing like the heads up display on a fancy car or in a fighter pilot's cockpit, you can do things in the real world, get things done, whereas if it's this big bulky thing that blocks everything out, you can't. So you're limited to maybe training, experiments, those kinds of things, but they're not real world usable. And in the end, Vuzix believes that these wearable display systems with computers built in is the future of computing. Mobility, hands-free, the whole world opens up when you can connect the digital world to the real world. And we saw it all the way back in the days of the special forces. These guys were highly, highly usable tools as opposed to a VR headset that you could train with and that was it. So you've made this transition from VR to AR. Who are the customers today of Vuzix? What does the enterprise side of the business look like? Just tell us a bit about what's happening in the business today. I'm very curious to kind of hear this story and how it's played out and what the future looks like. Yeah, so the bulk of our business today is focused on enterprise. We sell in the warehousing space, logistics. We sell with remote support in the medical space. There's almost no cross-section of industry today that isn't starting to look at using smart glasses. As it happens, COVID has really driven this because nobody can get on an airplane and show up in China today, let alone in the state next door even in many cases. So what happens is people are putting our glasses on, and this might be a good time to kind of describe how the glasses work. We have several of them in our lineup. We have a thing called the M400, which those people that might know Google Glass, it's like a Google Glass. It's a computer stick that slides down the side of your temple. We have like 15 different kinds of options you can wear it from hard hats to baseball caps and the likes, but it slides on. And it, in front of your eye, puts a little tiny, beautiful OLED display, like the displays on an iPhone. They're retinal kinds of displays, 10,001 contrast, 
absolutely gorgeous, but you can keep it down low or up high in your vision, put it where you want to. Then out the front, there's a camera that looks into the real world. In our case, it's a 4K broadcast quality camera that's image stabilized. So, you know, you're wearing this thing, it's up on the side of your head, that camera is running and it's recording and streaming this beautiful video into the glasses. Now, the glasses are connected to the internet over a Wi-Fi connection. Or we just announced a relationship with Signify the other day using Li-Fi, which is a light-based, secure communication. So if you're in a military organization where you don't want people sniffing your Wi-Fi signals, you can do it that way. In any event, this thing is connected to the Internet or connected to a private intranet. Now, somebody else somewhere around the world can log into the Internet and see what I'm seeing. And why is that important? I can't go do audits in my plant anymore in China today. So I can send a pair of my glasses. They're at the people that I work with at my plant. And I'm sitting there as an expert running the plant floor from Rochester, New York, seeing what's happening in Beijing, let's say, without ever having to get on an airplane even. Now, this is a big deal today because of COVID. You know, we work with Doctors Without Borders, in the medical space, it really took off big time for us in 2020 because you couldn't even get in a hospital. And today, the only way doctors can even do operations, often they need experts from medical device companies like Medtronics and the like. And they usually, somebody comes in and they help manage that equipment during the operation and then leave. They do it constantly. You can't do that today. So what they're doing is they're sending in our glasses Ohana one. This is a really good example. This is Doctors Without Borders. They now have literally, I don't know, between 50 and 100 plus systems. They just started. Doctor in Africa, he's doing an operation. It's the first time he needs help on this particular piece of an open heart surgery. The expert in San Francisco, he's logged into a portal. The doctor in South Africa has got the glasses on. That expert is seeing what he's doing just like he was standing next to him. And literally, he can reach out and draw the expert on his screen, circle this, put an X on that. Don't cut the blue wire, cut the red wire kind of a thing. And the doctor on the other end is seeing it just like this expert doctor was there. So what does that save you now? This expert doctor could do 10 operations a day, possibly at least one a day. Whereas before he'd get on an airplane, fly to South Africa, do one, go to another hospital, do another one. And in a week, he might get two operations done at best. And look at all the jet fuel and everything that's being burned up. So remote support, remote applications like that in medical, but that stretches into almost every piece of industry today. And it's beautifully hands-free, image stabilized hands-free. The doctor can work. And while he's doing that, he can see and get help or he can teach what he's doing and share it with folks the other way around. Have you experienced any variation in adoption rates across the different industries that you have worked with? I'm wondering out of the early adopters, who are you know the earliest adopters? Well, the medical space right now, it's been critical for them. They just don't have a way to stay in business in, in many cases. And it's safer having glasses doing rounds than having 30 doctors doing rounds in the morning, as an example. You have one doctor, he goes in, he does the rounds, and all of the 30 other people that might normally be doing rounds with them are sitting comfortably in a place that they know they won't be able to spread and or catch the virus at the same time. So COVID has driven medical in a big way. Zoom, remote everything these days, 
And that's exactly what this is, but we're doing it with one exception being the one physical guy that has to be there to do the audits or the one connection. And that is going one to many. And as it happens, that's been a big plus for people in the medical space. And if you go to our website, you'll see there's a bunch of webinars out there. So many of them are related to the medical space. The way that you describe the glass is it's a two-way broadcast in that, you know, you're broadcasting not only what the user's seeing, but then what on the other side, people can broadcast to the user. And I think many people don't understand or think of that initially when they think of AR glasses or AR headsets. So can you just help us kind of decipher out all of the common misconceptions about the AR space, line it up for us, all different terms? How do you see it? And how is Vuzix kind of just using these glasses in a different way than other competitors? Yeah, that's actually quite confusing, Nick. It's, it's a really good point. Uh, well, it's not confusing for Vuzix. I think we have it very clear. But there's a lot of different terminology out there. There's virtual reality. There's mixed reality systems. There's what they call XR, which is kind of like throw it all in the box, as it were. And then there's telepresence. And then there's this whole spatial computing. These things are all revolving around this whole concept of wearable computing today. Spatial computing, things like Magic Leap, right, where you got a whale jumping out of a floor sort of a thing. And when you've got the glasses on, you can see this whale. That is not all that useful today. It's an interesting concept, especially if it were halfway decent, but it's too expensive. It's too big and bulky. By the time you get a pair of glasses that even do a half-assed job at best, nobody wants to put them on because you look like you're, again, wearing a welding helmet system. It's crazy. And I'm not to throw my um, HoloLens under the bus because their spatial computing system is really cool. But today, it's way more complicated than what's needed for the wearable tech space to make a big impact. Industries operate on processes and procedures. And when you have to completely re-rip all that out and start over with brand new ways of doing things, it's too big a step. I'm a big believer in spatial computing. You're going to put your glasses on and you're going to chase Pokemon Go characters down the street, down the road. Absolutely going to happen. But it's not going to happen with the kinds of devices people are making today. They're too big and bulky. That's the spatial computing and the classic augmented reality side. We do augmented reality, but we do it in a very simple way. You put these glasses on, they're streaming video. It's very, very close to a phone, but we've got extra software that's been written now that allows you to do things like telestrate. Instead of putting up a computing screen over here on the wall and when you turn away, it's and then you turn back and it's there, we do things like I'm looking at the heart or I'm gonna defuse this bomb. My glasses are looking down at the bomb. The expert in the bomb shelter safely <laughs> looks in and sees through his phone. And we can talk back and forth, just like we were doing a, a visual communications with voice and everything. And at the same time, he can telestrate, or I can, to share things back and forth. So it's, it, you're right, it's voice, it's visual, it's you reach in and you draw on the screen. It's taking all of this multimedia experiences, but in a very simple way. So it's so easy to take processes and procedures today and put them on a pair of glasses compared to try to do full up spatial computing where you might be looking at a piece of equipment and you got to learn how to change the oil filters and they're lighting up the whole thing while you look at it. And it's this big piece of gear that you're wearing that it just takes months and months and months to get all that stuff in place and the processes and procedures aren't there for it. and nobody wants to wear the glasses because an hour after you have them on they hurt 
So our glasses, we learned up front, lightweight, truly wearable. Our smart glasses are 2.8 ounces kind of a thing. And so we have doctors wearing them for an eight-hour operation nonstop the whole way through. They get done, and it doesn't feel like they're wearing anything more than what they would normally wear. Our competitors are in the pounds because they're trying to do this full-up spatial computing stuff, which, by the way, there is no market for yet. The biggest markets, the ones that are taking off like wildfire for music so far, are these lighter weight, truly wearable, put them in a job function and they get something done and you get ROIs for doing it. You can pick out of a warehouse, let's say, 20 or 30% faster with almost zero mistakes using our glasses. Can you imagine a warehouse picker using HoloLens to try to do that? It just doesn't make any sense, especially an hour later, you've got to plug it in and let it charge because you... People pick eight hours a day, even longer at some time. So truly lightweight, truly wearable all day long. And they got all of the key stuff that's required for high performance, two-way visual communications and doing this augmenting of the information you have to get things done. Okay, Paul, you gave a lot of great examples of use cases for AR smart glasses, but could you also provide any quantitative insights into the productivity uplifts of individual workers when equipped with enterprise AR devices? You know, it's interesting. It's productivity improvements for sure, but you can do things today that you just couldn't do before. An example here, warehouse picking. Picking 20 to 40% faster is easily done with a pair of smart glasses compared to a barcode scanner. But think about when a piece of equipment goes down, an expensive piece of equipment that's running, let's say, 60,000 bottles an hour in a bottling line. Heretofore, you sent somebody over to the plant to help fix the equipment, and maybe a day later it was back up and running. And so you got a day's worth of production at 60,000 bottles a day. That just didn't happen. And how much lost production is that? It's literally tens, could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Whereas if you had a pair of smart glasses sitting there, the tech puts them on and boom, an hour later, the plant's running. Even bigger, an oil rig that might go down. The oil rig out in the Gulf goes down and it's literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to get that oil rig back online and millions of dollars worth of lost production. These glasses are enabling overnight, but an hour's worth of time to bring some of those things and solutions back online. So trying to measure the value proposition of using smart glasses versus something you could never do before. It's just big ROIs that are in the offing right now. And then just in general, the accuracies and things that come up when you're using, we have a couple of pair of M series smart glasses today. We have an M400, which is occluded with this beautiful OLED display. We've also got an M4000, which has a waveguide, which is optically see-through. So here, this is like having the screen on a fighter pilot's cockpit. So when you put the glasses on here, you look and the imagery floats out in front of you as if it's part of the real world. So now you can imagine when you're picking and you're looking at a warehouse bin and the number two is on top of the bin, you know exactly how much to pick out of that bin and you know it's exactly that bin. So error rates go through the floor. And you can imagine, let's take a car production line as an example today. When they're picking for accessories, I mean, every car gets custom built today. If the wrong accessory gets picked and they put the wrong color, the car comes off the line at the end, gets put over in the corner, and technicians have to take it apart and fix that. Those are very expensive errors. So having zero error rates is a big deal in the car industry, and we're working with companies like BMW and the likes to do those kinds of things. So the ROIs are are big, 
today, the most immediate thing, though, is you can do things you never could do before, like keeping a remote plant up by doing audits remotely and those kinds of things. How often are you finding that Vuzix is competing against automation and robotics in terms of, you know, I view this space as you're enhancing the human capabilities through tech, right? But there's this other kind of competing side of, well, let's just replace the human altogether. And how often, and, you know, I would love to get your just opinion on the overall kind of robotic space and how you see Vuzix and the AR space butting heads. Yeah. So look, I'm a big believer in automation. We use it on our plant floor. There are certain jobs on our plant floor that a human being can't do. The replication of our waveguides is an example of that. But there are other jobs that robots, at least right now, have a long way to go before they will work well. And Walmart is a simple example of that. They've had robots for quite some time in their stores picking, doing audits of what's on the shelves and those kinds of things. And they are moving away from that in favor of going back to human beings. Tesla, when they were bringing their plant floors up the first times, you know, even Elon will tell you that too much automation doesn't work. You need people in the mix every now and then. And, and I see that as the case. Now, what we enable is the human experience to be connected to the machines. This is where we're opening up things that are difficult to have happen today. But when you can look at a piece of equipment and it'll tell you the temperature of the bearings that it's running at, it'll tell you all this stuff that's going on so you can advance, fix, and maintain those kinds of things. We enable that side of it. So we're the part that keeps the machines going. <laughs> and I believe there's certain areas where humans just fit better than robots today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we would 100% agree that humans are going to be a part of the workforce, maybe not in abundance when robotics scale to what you're talking about, but they will definitely be there. And if they are there, they should be enhanced by technology. And I think that's why on the enterprise side, AR is just such an interesting application because of what it allows a human to do in terms of hands-free technology, enhancing their ability just across the board. So the beautiful thing with the Internet of Things, right, is you can walk through a plant and all these sensors are connected to the Internet. And with a pair of these glasses on, you can look at all that equipment and in real time assess and find out what that equipment is doing, as opposed to pulling out a computer, looking at the digital twin, et cetera. And these guys are in these plants. They're working. They need their hands. And you're right. This closes the loop and it connects the real and the digital world at the same time. You don't need a HoloLens for that, by the way. You need a nice little lightweight, all-day wearable gizmo to help you make those connections. Right. Do you think the idea of full immersion or hyper-realism go directly against functionality and productivity in the enterprise space? Yeah, I mean, today it's in the way. I mean, even the size of our current occluded display system is a concern for some enterprise customers. So this whole idea of full immersion when you're trying to work in the real world and, you know, trying to connect these full digital models pasted on top of the real world, there's all kinds of issues associated with trying to make that work today. You just don't need that either because it's so far away from what the most immediate ways of processes and procedures get done. It's just too big of a jump today. I mean, I can't say down the road that it's not going to happen, but, you know, with a pair of glasses on that way as much as a HoloLens or a Magic Leap, they have all these issues associated with tinting and that sort of stuff because they're not bright enough to work in these kinds of environments. And then you got to make all this darn software, tie it all together. It just doesn't make sense. 
if you think R&D dollars going into you know, improvements in spatial computing or graphical improvements are not the most important thing, then like what are the critical target R&D areas for these AR smart classes in the enterprise space? Yeah, I mean, compute's important, but the reality of it is with 5G coming and the likes, there'll come a day when you'll have all the compute you need just over a you know 5G wireless link. That said, these little tiny computers from companies like Qualcomm and the like, they're getting to be incredibly impressive what they can do in a little space. But these products, smart glasses, they got to be wearable. Nobody wants to look like they just stepped off the Starship Enterprise, especially in the broader markets. But on an eight-hour shift, you can see these little guys behind me. They're comfortable looking. You could work all day long with these things on. But then in the broader markets... People aren't going to wear stuff that looks like this. You won't find my wife walking down the street in New York City with an M400 on. That's a guarantee. That We're talking form factor, lightweight, sexy. This is the first problem that's got to get fixed. If you look like you just stepped up the Starship Enterprise or like a glass hole, you have a marketing challenge bigger than any new product that you might want to put in the marketplace. So the look and feel of these things. How do you make Oakley-style sunglasses? It goes all the way back to what the U.S. military guys, the special forces, wanted from Buzix. And Buzix has been spending an awful lot of time trying to solve that problem. We know lightweight works. That's certainly what's driving our business today. We also know that we've come out with every big, bulky, crazy, oddball-looking thing ever. And when that's that, you fail. (laughs) There's a lot of companies with roadkill on the side of the road because they've done that. It's lightweight sexy, truly wearable. That's the first thing. And then they have to solve a problem for folks. But that said, you know, in the broader markets, the smartphone is teaching people how to compute a whole brand new way. Today with AR Core and AR Kit, you can pick up your phone, point it down the street, ask for directions to the Thai restaurant and painted on the road are the arrows through the back of the screen of the phone are arrows painted on the road telling you how to get there augmented reality, right? People are not going to walk around holding their phones up. That's not what these changes are being made for. They're being made for glasses. Ask the president of Apple. He'll tell you augmented reality is going to be the biggest thing, bigger than computing today. And Vuzix believes that same thing. The technology, this is the next level of computing. You'll put the glasses on, painted on the road in front of you will be the arrow to get to where you're going or Pokemon Go characters running around. I mean, we ultimately are big believers in that full experience. But today, step one is truly wearable, lightweight, something people will put on. And that's where Vuzix has our focus. We have a intellectual property portfolio that is driven by solving that problem. We have 180 plus patents and patents pending today. We have on the optics and the display engines that drive to make those kinds of look and feel glasses. We have a manufacturing facility here in Rochester, New York, that is dedicated to making the waveguides and optical engines and systems to make glasses that have that Oakley-style look and feel. And we announced at the Consumer Electronics Show, actually, a, a brand new pair, and they won a bunch of awards at the show. They look strikingly like a pair of Oakley-style sunglasses. And we've gotten nothing but incredibly positive feedback so far on them. They're made up of these little micro LED display engines that are the size of a, of a dime. The engine itself, the display is only 0.13 inches in diagonal. So that's this tiny thing, like the pencil eraser. 
that goes next to our waveguides, which can be made out of plastic that are super lightweight. And they fit in glasses, like I said, that literally look like Oakley's. I want to touch on just the commercial opportunity and just to give some background on ARC's research for everyone. You know, we put this in our Big Ideas 2021. We had a full seven-page deck in that presentation around this understanding of virtual worlds and their meaning in the future of tomorrow. And we have our forecast and we did this mostly and it, you know, the forecast we provide in Big Ideas is centered around the commercial opportunity. And and we 100% agree with your take in that people aren't going to be walking around with smartphones. It's not a natural way to perceive AR technology. What we see is an inflection point over the next few years, once you get commercial grade glasses to hit the market and consumers have already built up this use case because of what we're doing today with our smartphones. But when the glasses hit the market, we think, you know, this turns in from a $1.2 billion commercial opportunity by year end this year to $130 billion opportunity by 2030. I think just the applications are almost unimaginable at this point because we really don't know. It's like trying to go back and when the iPhone first launched and the App Store first launched in, in 08 saying, oh, well, there's going to be Uber and, and you know all of these different services. It's, it's too hard to imagine today, but it just feels very natural in that the glasses provide convenience and just more interactivity. And that's really what computing has built on in each generation from desktop to laptop to tablet to mobile phone. Each iteration of this has gotten more convenient and more interactive. And it does seem that the glasses are the next step in that evolution. Absolutely. When you can take the digital world and bring it into the real one, it changes everything. That mapping example, just as one simple example, when's the last time you picked up a paper map, man? Right. <laughs> right. Everybody holds their phone now and they're looking down at it, walking out in traffic in New York City, getting run over. You're just going to put your glasses on. Boom. Where's the restaurant? And you're going to you could even have a little avatar help you get there if you want it. Right. Changes everything. And we don't know all of the things. But when you're dealing with the future of computing, you know, one thing, it will be everywhere. Ubiquitous. Right. I want to switch gears here just for a second, because you have this storied career in AR, VR, and you actually started in the VR space. I'd love to just get your opinion on what the VR space looks like today, potential application, you know, what's happening from your viewpoint. Are we going to see a boom in, in terms of VR? Are we at that final kind of inflection point? It seems like over the past 10 plus years, there's always been these boom bust cycles in VR. Everyone gets excited around Christmas because the new Oculus is hitting the market. And then by June, we've forgotten about the oculus is that going to happen again is vr here to stay what's happening well first of all let me say that in the end nick i believe all of these technologies will merge and it'll be your glasses when the glasses are right you'll be able to get vr experiences immersive electronic shutters can put you in the virtual space or you can step into the real world i believe that vr is finally reaching that point to where it's becoming something. I mean, my mother-in-law, just as an example, I mean, she'd love to go to Africa. She can't. So I brought the glasses home. I, I have a bunch of Oculus glasses. We, as you might imagine, we own everything here. <laughs> I brought them home and she was giddy about this trip that she took to Africa. And she'd be using them every night. And it's been a long time. You know, when all of a sudden everybody talks about, well, I bought two and I... 
this is what's happening in VR today. And you can see it picking up, especially in the entertainment side of the space. I think when it comes to enterprise, there's less use cases in enterprise. There's, you know, there's training and the likes. I just don't see it being used everywhere there, but it's way more than it ever has been in the past. I think you'll see it continue to grow. And then I think you're going to see guys like Apple come out with mixed reality VR glasses first, I bet. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't really know. But so you can imagine them bringing experiences that are you can get by with a bit bigger and bulkier because, hey, not for nothing. That's what the VR space is today. So you make a sexier version of VR. I could see Apple going there first. And turning cameras on, look out into the real world as a step before you get into. But, you know, these things are, I think, in unstoppable tracks. VR, AR, MR, XR, spatial computing. All those words are real and they all represent something. And I think they're all going to be converging. There's winners and losers along the way, but they're all converging into the future of screens and computing. And is there a moment in the past 10, 20 years that you can point to in both the AR and VR space where you said, you know, that is a game changer for this technology. This is going to allow us to build the glasses of the future. This is the tech that's allowing VR to have a moment. What's changed? What, like the, you know, the real like fundamental technical level, what is changing here? There's a bunch of things that have changed from my perspective. I mean, one is the computing platforms. Another one is the internet and how ubiquitous it is and how much computing power is available in it. Another one that's changing coming fast is the wireless comms to it all. The hardest part's been the glasses. Companies, every time you turn around, there's another pair of AR or VR glasses, but they're all based upon optical systems from the days of Copernicus. I mean, we're talking about mirrors and glass and, and the display systems have been these big bulky display systems. And all of that has just in the most recent years, finally turning a corner to where it's got some new magic. You know, we make waveguides, we make surface relief style grading waveguides here, and we make volume hologram waveguides here in Rochester, New York. And between those two, you can make lenses that fit in glasses that are super sexy. Now you got to drive it with a display of some type. And so we've been spending an awful lot of time on the display side too. So there's this micro LED technology that's coming out of the marketplace that we are big believers in also. What's nice about micro LEDs, well, take a step back. If you're using a conventional front lit display, like an LCOS display or a Texas Instruments DLP, you've got this little display and it's got a million pixels on it and you got to light it from the front. So you got a big lighting engine in the back with a red, blue, and green LED, and it goes red, blue, green, red, blue, green, and you put it through a pile of optics, and you turn it into a flashlight that points down on the display. Then what happens is the display modulates that light and lets some of it out through the projection optics into our waveguides. So you imagine there's this great big display thing that's two inches long, right? And every single pixel's on all the time, sucking up gobs and gobs of power. So that needs to change also. We make the really cool waveguides. Like we got, you've seen our blade, which looks a lot like a pair of Oakleys, although it's chunky on the sides. That's driven by these displays. Our new displays, like I said, are the size of a pencil eraser. And you only light up the pixel you want because they're made of little micro LEDs. So instead of these big red, blue, and green ones that you cycle, and they're all on all the time, you only turn the pixel on that you want with a micro LED display engine. And 
again, like I said, we've got this display today that's the size of a pencil eraser. And with it, you're drawing the power only for the pixel that you want on. So we're doing directions, going down the street, an arrow to the right, there's 500 pixels on. That's it. You go back to the old display design and you got a thousand pixels on and you're throwing away all that light, which is power consumption and the like. So to make it smaller, it's the display engines and it's the waveguide systems together. And none of those things are perfect today, but I can tell you that Vuzix, I think, is leading the pack on making these things come together in a form factor people will wear. And I think we also realize all in one package super lightweight and make them sexy. There are markets for that right now. And they're the beginnings of people moving from the phone to a pair of glasses. It's not going to be long. People won't even carry phones. One of the pair that we're coming out with by the end of this year got the possibility for LTE radios in it even. So you got a pair of glasses that look striking like Oakley's that even has the cellular phone connection in it. So effectively, they're going to be a phone. Tiny displays, tiny waveguides, the new silicon coming from companies like Qualcomm's and the like. And you put all that together into a pair of glasses that literally give you most of the capabilities of a phone, but all the added capabilities of connecting the digital world to the real world, because the imagery that you see through them is floating in front of you in the real world, and it can be connected to what you're looking at and what the web has to offer. Game-changing stuff. Could you describe the technological moat within the AR space and what competition generally looks like? Because I assume that, at least in the enterprise space, that there's going to be a lot of sales competition when it comes to overall gaining of market share. And I was wondering how both economic moat and sales and marketing efficiencies are going to affect future competition. Well, first of all, Andrew, Vuzix is not standing still on two fronts. Well, I mean, one of them is the wearable tech itself. We have a great stake in the ground. I believe we're ahead of every company that's out there. We have solutions that drive real solutions in the real world. In the last five years, there's been a lot of software developed that now is like the Excel spreadsheet that just runs on our glasses. But we're also seeing so many verticals that nobody has done a single thing with yet that are worth billions and billions of dollars. And so Vuzix has a software group that we're growing right now that are working on that vertical software. So we're building not just a pair of glasses, but we're building in select areas solutions that drive big business. Now, why is that important? When we're selling a SaaS-based model, people buy our glasses. They pay annual fees for the software to drive their solution. They're saving millions of dollars annually by using our glasses. And they're pushing a lot of those dollars to us annually. So we have a full package. You buy our glasses. You got the software. That's the solution. And Enterprise Vuzix thinks we can drive and own major, major new business areas. I mean, just think about pole maintenance alone. There's millions of telephone poles across the United States today. How do you go about maintaining those lines today? Look at Texas just in the last couple of weeks, the train wreck they've gone through. These things are expensive. And by putting on a pair of glasses with an AI engine and the right software, literally you can just look at the line and it can put together all of the stuff you need and maintain that line as opposed to literally tens of thousands of dollars per mile a line with inspectors today. The car industry with insurance. You got a guy, he comes up, he looks at the car, it's crushed in the front quarter panel all the way down to the front seat of the car. 
with a pair of these glasses on and the right software, you look, the entire repair list, the cost, the estimates, everything done like that. In industries like that, there are millions and millions of dollars to be saved. And it's why smart glasses are going to be everywhere. So Musix is building up that piece of our business. We think it's really important because it makes our hardware sticky too. So these guys are using them. It becomes the new norm. That's how you do insurance, inspect their work, et cetera. And every single year they're buying the next software package and continuing with the SaaS models and buying our next generation hardware. Now, our hardware is going to have software in it that's designed to make those problems happen better. And there's algorithms associated with how the AI would work and how the cameras work. It's just like why Musix's software or hardware today is the best streaming camera systems. We're doing the same sort of stuff with low-level software in our packages. But at the same time, Andrew, we're building the next generation display systems that we think will be cornerstone to many solutions that you'll see in the marketplace. In the consumer space, Musix today is not looking at being the next Apple. Who knows? We'll see where that might go. But there's a lot of companies coming to us that would like to buy these engines that we're building. And if we were in every single pair of glasses that shipped and we had and owned the enterprise industry, we would own a big portion of that $100, $130 billion industry you were talking about, Nick. Paul, I want to just focus on the important piece here, and it's the software side, right? We've touched a lot on the hardware, but you've kind of picked up here on and just given us great explanation of kind of how the software side is playing out. I have a question, though. How does, if someone were to create a software for telephone pole replacement lines, as you say, is that something that they can build out in general AR and it would be then an application you could use not just on a Fusix pair of glasses, but on a competitor's? Or is it more like the iOS versus Android where you have to have two separate apps and you have to build kind of two separate, entirely different builds for this kind of application? Today, Musix is not so interested in building our software to support other glasses <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? And we're building features. So we do run Android in the glasses, but it's a special build of Android. And we have all kinds of extra apps and services that we're building in to our glasses that aren't necessarily in other companies' glasses. We use those in our software to drive our solutions. So that's going to make some of our solutions pretty proprietary to our platform just like apple does they're very protective of their ecosystem that they've built and we're doing a similar thing around our hardware from a software perspective so that package of stuff that we're building can easily be extended for instance the stuff that's looking at the power lines could be used in inventory counting and warehouses where you just might look at shells worth of lumber and it would tell you there are 52 by fours there are 236 eight by eights there are and it would do all that stuff on the fly because those same ai engines with hourglasses can be repurposed so a lot of what we're building will open up many different verticals but a lot of it's focused on views that said we are looking at tablets and phones and the likes because lots of companies today need to have the software systems that they use work across their platform of hardware that they have, but we're not so concerned about anybody else's headsets. It's Musix. How big would you say the AR creator developer side of the business is in terms of, you know, how many people are out there actually developing AR applications today? And what are those numbers look like versus iOS and Android? Do you have any figures there? I don't. I can tell you about Musix. I mean, we have our 
developer tools online. You have to sign up to become a developer for Vuzix. It doesn't cost anything, but we get hundreds a month easily of new developers signing up to support our products today. It's growing. We probably have 5,000, over 5,000 developers that have signed up so far to support our products. And that's all enterprise for the most part. And so these are companies or organizations making solutions around the enterprise space. That's a large number of developer activities and accounts that are happening in this space for Vuzix. Wow. So it's still relatively small, but growing fast. Yeah. Well, think about it for a minute, Nick. You got any one of those guys could represent many, many thousands of units. Here's an example. Uh, the guys over at Pixie. Pixie do knee surgery. And they use hourglasses to align the knee for the pins that they put in. There's 600,000 knee surgeries a year in the United States alone. They should have their FDA approval here within the next month or two. And with these glasses on, it's a fraction of the cost compared to the way people do it today. That's one developer. One developer, that industry could represent tens of thousands of glasses for Vuzix in the knee surgery space. And they're going to be moving to shoulder surgery shortly. One. So when you think about enterprise and enterprise solutions, any one of those partners that have signed up to develop on, for, on our platform could represent significant revenue streams for Vuzix. Right. When you put it, you know, one developer, one problem, but large opportunity, it, it kind of sets the stage. And because this is a platform at the end of the day, the glasses are a platform that people can develop on in the same way that this smartphone was in, you know, 08, 09, right? This is the next step in computing. And we 100% agree. Now, I think when Apple first shipped the iPhone, there were like six apps on it. Right. No app store. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. That's what it's become. And Vuzix is in that same spot today. We have actually hundreds of apps on our app store today. And we have a very large number of folks developing for it. There are some basic things that are becoming ubiquitous. You know, remote support is an example of that. I mean, that's like buying an Excel spreadsheet for our glasses today. And that piece of our business is just climbing nicely. But yeah, now we're in medical and knee surgery and multiple mm -hmm. kinds of knee surgeries right now. There's another company called Rods and Cones that are using them for operations and the likes that just got it started that, you know, they think they're going to be buying thousands of them from us for their application that they wrote. So, yeah, you got it. Yeah. And we, you know, we have a saying here, just disruptive innovation usually follows the same pattern in that it starts slow and then it happens all at once. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, how'd that happen overnight? And people don't realize the 10, 20 years it took to get to that point, to that inflection point when you start to kind of hit the middle of the S-curve. It seems like the AR, VR space is, is nearing that inflection point in different ways. Touche to that. <laughs> <laughs> These overnight right. successes that only take 20 plus years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Most things don't happen overnight. No. They look at when you look back because finally after all those what do they call it? Fail fast. Music has gone through a lot of failures along the way, but we've been here. We're strong. And we've finally reached that point to where, oh, wait a minute, this one's not failing. And this you learn, right? And you get better and better at it. And then the world comes along and then everything starts to align. And I think that's where it's at for music and our customers in the AR smart glasses space. Great. All right. With that, Paul, thank you so much for coming on and telling the music story. It's been 
quite incredible to hear how you went from VR to AR and to where you're at today. We wish you nothing but the best and hope to continue to be there on your journey and hear more from you. Sounds great, Nick. Thanks very much for having me on. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.